life. I want you to think about this question, uh, that if I gave you today uh, the opportunity uh, to do whatever it is that you do, and I know there's a, there's a ton of, of different lines of work represented in the room today, okay? So let's just imagine you had the opportunity, starting fresh out of college, uh, to do whatever it is that you do, or maybe if you don't like what you do, do something that you do like doing, you'd want to do, okay? Do it for about 18 to 20 years, and by the time you're done, you'd only have to do it for 18, 18 years or so, be able to retire and be seen as the best um, or one of the best, if not the very best, to ever do what you do and have a net worth of about $200, $250 million. If I gave you that opportunity, how many of you would take it by show of hands? And don't be spiritual right now. Be honest. All right? Let's go. There you go. Of course you would. I mean, who in the world wouldn't, right? You don't have to work for 18 years. You're doing something that you love, uh, and, and you're so successful. You go down as one of the best to ever do it, and um, you, know, you, you, you make a chunk of change. I think you could, I think you could live on it you know, for, a, for a minute or two you know, if you, if you make, that, make that amount of money. Now, for us, that's a fairy tale, right? That's a fairy tale. However, for one certain person who many of us will watch at some point tonight do that thing that he does so well, um, that's his reality, and the person I'm talking about is Tom Brady, the quarterback of the New England Patriots. Now, I'm not going to ask you what your feelings are about Tom Brady because that's one of the most polarizing questions ever, okay? So I'm not going to ask you about that. We already, got, we already got our question and answer time out of the way, okay? No more, no more response. I'm just kidding. But, um, but, but Tom Brady, listen, it's, it's, an, it's a really unbelievable story, whatever your thoughts are. And, and, and to put it out there, I'm not a Tom Brady fan. I'm not a Patriots fan. However, the story's compelling. The story is compelling, and my brother in the back here is representing. There we are. Yes, he is. So if you want to talk about it, brother in the back can help you out. Anything you need to know about Tom Brady. All right. And the Patriots, no doubt who he's pulling for tonight. Tom Brady, year 2000, he's, he's got a pretty pedestrian career at, at Michigan, just pretty average quarterback, uh, did okay, nothing flashy, nothing brilliant, no real huge prospects in the NFL. He's drafted in the sixth round with the 199th pick by the New England Patriots. He is picked to be a backup. They already had a quarterback. His name was Drew Bledsoe. He's at the top of his game in the prime of his career, having the best years that he ever had as a professional quarterback there in New England. So Brady uh, is just drafted to, you know, hopefully uh, just be a serviceable, serviceable backup, get inserted in if he need be in an emergency situation, um, which is what happened just a couple of years into his time in the NFL. Uh, Bledsoe blows out his Achilles heel. Uh, Achilles tendon in his heel, misses the rest of the season, happened early in the season. Brady's inserted as the starter, and since then, he's never had a losing season. Tonight, he'll play in his eighth Super Bowl. He's now, as of this year, won his third uh, NFL MVP award. He's played in the Pro Bowl 13 times. He's been a four-time Super Bowl MVP. He's already won five Super Bowls. If they win tonight, it'll be Super Bowl number six, most all-time of any player, and certainly will be the most of, of any player who, who won them all with the same team. He's making about $45 million a year right now, and Forbes magazine ranks him as the 15th most wealthy person or athlete um, in the world with a net worth of about $250 million. Married, three kids, multiple houses, the whole nine yards. Now, why am I talking about Tom Brady and, and all of this? Here's why. A few years ago, he was featured uh, on 60 Minutes, you know, the show that comes after football on Sunday afternoons that we never watch because it's always coming later on the West Coast. Y'all know how they do that, 4 o'clock games winding down. Coming up next, 60 Minutes. Well, one year, uh, one time, Tom Brady was on 60 Minutes, and the whole purpose of the interview 
was this sort of meteoric rise of his career. How he goes from this pedestrian, average college quarterback, sixth-round draft pick, um, no real big you know, thought about what his, his NFL career might be. And now here he is, you know, already at that time, being talked about as one of the greatest. Certainly now, people would say he's one of, if not the greatest, uh, to have ever played. And in this interview, in this interview, the interviewer asks him, this question, he says this whole experience, this, this rise from six-round draft pick, backup quarterback, to now three Super Bowls uh, at the time of this question, what have you learned about yourself and what kind of effect has it had on you? Listen to Brady's response. He says, well, I put incredible amounts of pressure on me. When you feel like you're ultimately responsible for everyone and everything, even though you have no control over it, you still blame yourself if things don't go right. I mean, that's a lot of pressure. A lot of times I get very frustrated and introverted. There's times where I'm not the person I want to be. He goes on, he says, like, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. You've reached your goal, your dream, your, you have the life. Me, I think, God, there's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be all it's cracked up to be. I've done it. What else is there for me? The reporter was almost stunned by his response, and he says, well, what's the answer? And he says, I wish I knew, man. I wish I knew. I love playing football. I love being quarterback of this team. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of parts about me that I'm still trying to find. Now, here's what strikes me. Here's what strikes me. If if there ever was a person that we could say has it all, it would be a person like Tom Brady, or we could say Tom Brady, right? One of, if not the greatest quarterback to ever play in the NFL worth hundreds of millions of dollars, making tens of million dollars a year, doing what he does at the absolute highest level, winning championships, Pro Bowls, you name it, it's happening. And Tom Brady looks at his life and says, God, there's got to be more than this. Now here's what that means for you and me, because I'm assuming there are no multiple Super Bowl winners in the room today, okay? I'm assuming that none of you are making 40-plus million a year and worth over $200 million. If so, there's another offering opportunity coming at the end of the service. So on behalf of Dr. Keith Shorter, you need to get ready for that. All right, amen. I'm assuming that's not where we are, okay? I'm assuming that's not where we are. And if Tom Brady is saying, I've got all this stuff, And if that's where life and that's where meaning, that's where value, that's where purpose comes from, and we look to all these things to provide that for us, and if Tom Brady has all of it and says there's got to be something more, then what it means for you and me is we don't have a chance, right? Because we're not going to win multiple Super Bowls, and we're not going to make 200-plus million dollars in our career. We're not going to retire after only 18 years of doing whatever it is that we do and go down as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, to ever do what we do. Like That's not the reality for a lot of us, but if those are the things that it takes to have life and meaning and purpose and identity, and here this guy is that has all of it and says there's got to be more than this, then for you and me and our little average lives here in South Carolina, we're going, my goodness, there's no hope for me. There's, I don't have a chance. But we so much identify with the statement, God, there's got to be more than this. Because so often and so easily, we do look to someone or something, whether it's a job, it's wealth, it's possessions, it's achievement, it's a relationship. 
And we look to these things to give us life, to give us value, to give us purpose, to give us identity, to give us meaning, to give worth to our lives. We look to these things. And these very things that we look to for life only leave us feeling something that feels a whole lot more like death. And leaves us with the same response of fear, insecurity, doubt, sorrow, saying, God, there's got to be more than this. We can all identify with that sentiment. And it should challenge us. Somebody that culture would look at and say, man, this guy has it all. And he says, there's got to be more than this. That should challenge us to our core to wrestle with this question. How is it that we have life, value, purpose, worth, meaning? How do we find it? How do we discover it if it's not in these things? There's an interaction that Jesus had with someone that I think is very similar uh, to Tom Brady in terms of having it all. And in this interaction, we learn a lot about how, about how Jesus meets us in the fear and insecurity of our wonder, God, there's got to be something more than this. And shows us and points us to the way to have true life. So if you've got your Bible, I hope you do, turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 to 22 is where we're going to be this morning. I'll be reading and preaching from the English Standard Version, the ESV. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 to 22. I want to read the passage, this interaction that Jesus has with this guy that we, uh, we know from our Scripture, from the titles there to be a rich young man or a rich young ruler. Uh, we're gonna, I want to read this interaction, and then I want us to come back and talk about its application to our lives. What we learn about ourselves and the steps that Jesus would call us to take to find the life that he came to give us. So you follow along your copy of God's Word. The Scripture says, And as he, that's Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions." a couple things we need to know up front first about this this young man who comes in in approaching um, Jesus. First thing we know from this text is that he was wealthy. He was rich. He was rich. He had great possessions. He had had great wealth. He's called a rich young man or a rich young ruler. Um, So great were his possessions, right, that 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 he, he says, man, I, I, can't, I can't part with this because it's so great. It's so much a part of who he, he was. He was very wealthy. Now understand that what that meant in that culture was he was seen to be one who was blessed by God. If you, if you had a lot, then you were blessed. If you didn't have a lot, then you were seen to be cursed or, or stricken so, somewhat by God. So this guy in his wealth is seen to be blessed by God. We also know from Matthew's account of the same interaction in Matthew chapter 19 that he was a young man. He was a young man, and we don't know exactly what age he was, but we know that the, the range, based on the word used to describe him in his youth, the range of age would have been somewhere between 24 and 40 years old. So he's in, he's in the prime of his life. He's in his, his very best days. We also know from this interaction with Jesus that he was a moral man. He was a good guy. He followed the rules. He followed the law. Jesus rattled off several of the Ten Commandments. 
And the guy said, teacher, I've followed all of these since I was a young boy. And, and Jesus didn't dispute him. And anywhere Jesus went, there was always a crowd, and no one in that crowd disputed him. So there must have been some truth to what he was saying, that he was a moral guy. He's following the laws. He's following the commandments. And then we also know that he, was, he had great influence. He had power. He had a position of authority. He was, a, he was a ruler in the synagogue there. So he had leadership over a segment of people within the community, if not even larger than that. So, so add it all up. You have a young guy in the prime of his life who is extremely wealthy, which in culture would say he's blessed by God. Okay? He's a moral guy. He's a good guy. He's following the law. And he already has a position of great power and great influence. In our culture's terms, we would say this guy's got it all going for him. He's young. He's wealthy. He's a good guy. He's already got influence. And he's got so much potential out ahead of him. Yet, how we meet him we meet him as one, in verse 17, running to Jesus and falling down on his knees before him, saying, good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now understand, a person of his wealth and a person of his power and position would have, would have, would have had some measure of a robe and, and all kinds of stuff you know, around his neck and on his robe, and, and it just, it, it's a very big display, okay? to show his wealth, to show his power, to show his possession. And that's why okay, men who, who carried great wealth and carried great possession, they didn't run anywhere. All right? It was enough for them to just walk at a decent pace because they're carrying lots of weight. So in order for him to run, he would have had to reach down to the bottom of his robe and sort of you know, do this number which, you know, is already kind of embarrassing for me to be doing this in front of you, okay? So imagine him would have exposed his bare legs, and then he takes off running, right? Like, you know, it's just not a good look. It's just not something that guys did, right? But in the moment, when he, when he sees or hears that Jesus is close by, right? He, he knows, he's heard, man. He's heard something about the miracles, the healings, Jesus' is teaching. There's something about this guy. Not quite sure who he is, but there's something about him. Maybe he can help me with this question. What do I have to do to have life? Because I've got money, I've got power, I've got youth, I've got morality, but I still am lacking life. So he runs to Jesus. He, he's not just kind of casually bumping into Jesus. He is running, sprinting to Jesus, falling down on his knees. Teacher, what do I have to do? Because God, there's got to be more than this. Now, Jesus' response on the surface is a little bit confusing because it's not what we'd expect. Jesus says, go, sell all that you have, take the proceeds, give them away to the poor, and then you come and follow me. And we go, whoa, 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 time out, time out. Did Jesus just flip the script on the gospel? Did he just say that the way to get eternal life is by doing something? Is Jesus saying that in order to be a Christian and follow Jesus, you can't have any wealth, you can't have possessions, you have to sell it all, give it all away, and, and follow after him? Is that what he's saying? Is, I, thought, I thought that salvation was grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, but Jesus is saying, go and do something, and then you can come and follow me. That's not what Jesus is saying, though. The, the guy just said that he had followed all the, all the laws, but what Jesus is lovingly bringing to his attention is that he forgot the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. And when Jesus brought up the whole wealth possessions conversation, he exposed this guy's true God. That's why Jesus 
said to him when he came and said, good teacher, he says, why do you call me good? To, to call Jesus good would be to acknowledge that he's God. And Jesus is saying, why are you calling me good? Because you don't believe that I'm God. And he says, let me show you. Go take all your wealth and possessions, sell them. Take the proceeds, give it to the poor, then come follow me. And the scripture says in verse 22, the guy walked away disheartened by what Jesus said and sorrowful. And that word sorrowful is especially important because another place where we see that same word show up in the scripture is the description of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prayed to God the Father, if there's any other way for the mission to be accomplished, then let this cup of suffering pass from me, yet not what I will, but your will be done. You familiar with that scene? In that prayer, God, Jesus asking God the Father if there's another way for the mission to be accomplished, Jesus is described as sorrowful, troubled in his heart, in his spirit, right? It's the same word, just as Jesus couldn't bear the thought of being separated from God the Father in order to die on Calvary's cross for your sin and my sin. This guy can't bear the thought of being separated from his wealth and his possessions. Why? Because his wealth and his possessions are his God. He's looking to something else to give him life rather than the one whom he's knelt before. And what Jesus does with this guy is the same thing he does with you and me in response to our question and our angst. God, there's got to be more than this. What do we have to do to have life? Here's what Jesus says to us. And it's the same thing he's saying here. Am I not enough? Do, Do you really believe that I am enough? Or do we subtly or sometimes not so subtly in our lives live in Jesus plus scenarios. Jesus plus the promotion. Jesus plus wealthy retirement. Jesus plus the relationship. Jesus plus fill in the blank, whatever it might be. And what Jesus looks at this guy and says is the same thing he looks at you and me and says, am I enough? Do you really believe that life in relationship with me is enough. That, that I can provide for you life that none of these other things could ever give you. Because these things are so often here today and gone tomorrow. But I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you believe that I am enough? Listen to what the psalmist says about life in relationship with Jesus. In, in Psalm chapter 16, he says, You make known to me the path of life, in your presence, that is in right relationship with you, you are on your throne, I am living in submission and surrender to you. He says, in your presence there's fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Isn't that what we want? A fullness of joy communicates an unending joy and pleasures forevermore. You never get to the end of the joy that comes in life and right relationship with God, you never get to the end that the pleasure and the peace and the contentment that right relationship with God brings into our lives, you never get to the end of it. But when Jesus is in His proper place upon the throne of our lives, of our hearts, of our minds, there's fullness of joy, there's pleasures forevermore. Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So when we say, God, there's got to be more than this because we've given ourselves to whatever pursuit it might be that we've, we've put ahead of relationship with Jesus, whatever it is we've put on the throne that Jesus rightfully is to assume in our lives, okay? 
It's part of the enemy's plan to steal, kill, and destroy. That's why we get to the end of these pursuits going, God, there's got to be more. I got it. I made it. I won. I accomplished. I achieved. I earned. I saved. Look what I've got. But God, there's got to be something more. Why? Because we've put something or someone else on the throne that Jesus, Jesus alone deserves to occupy. That's why Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came to give you life. Life to the full. Life abundantly. Life that you can't possibly measure or fathom. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6. No man comes to the Father but through me. No man gets this life. It's not me plus, it's just me. No man comes to the Father but through me. No one gets eternal life. Trusting in me and their works. Trusting in me and their possessions. Trusting in me and their accomplishment. Trusting in me and their religion. Trusting in me and, me and, me. No, no. It's me. No one finds the abundant life that Jesus came to give us in Jesus plus scenarios. It's Jesus and Him alone. And here's what we have to recognize. Fundamental, foundational truth, reality of Christianity. Christianity is not primarily about God making bad people good. Does God transform our lives in relationship with Him? You better believe it. You and I place our faith in Jesus, begin a relationship with Him. We involve ourselves in a great faith family like this one. We pursue God through His Word and in prayer. We get in community with other Christians that are pursuing the heart of God together. Does God change us and make us more and more like Jesus? You better believe it. He absolutely transforms us. But the foundation beginning point is not Christianity making bad people good, it's God making dead people alive. Because if we're dead in our sins and our trespasses and separated from God, separated from a relationship with Jesus, then we're dead and, and dead things don't grow. Dead things just stay dead, right? So foundational, fundamental is Jesus came to give us life. And when we place our faith in Him and surrender to Him and then give our lives to Him and then begin living our lives to worship Him and to follow Him, then He begins to work in our lives, to mold us and shape us more and more into His image, to make us more like Him. But it starts with us who are dead being made alive. Jesus came to give us life. Life to the full. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. Not Jesus plus, just Jesus and so, like any loving father would do, when there are things, or people, pursuits, that we begin to give our lives to, looking for life, those things, in fact, are robbing us of life, or threaten to rob us of our lives, like any loving father, Jesus doesn't sit on the sideline, but he gets involved, he pursues and he puts his finger on it, and he elevates it, just as he did with this rich young man who knelt down before him and said, Teacher, there's got to be more than this. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Because I feel dead. He does the same thing for you and me. I have uh, three daughters, well, my wife and I do, um, 13, 11, and 6. Uh, yes, you can pray for me, and yes, you can contribute to the Hardwick Wedding Fund, $200 million. Somebody's got it, right? All right. Our six-year-old, I describe her lovingly as our kamikaze. She is wide open, right? Not afraid of anything. Never stops moving. Never stops talking. It's just constant. Just, she's just all over the place. Um, her best friends live across the street from us. Three, three little girls. Don't just pray for me. Pray for my neighbors across the street. Three little girls about the same age as her. 
Um, two of them are twins, and they're wide open as well. And so they just have big fun, and they're constantly just zoom, 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 back and forth between our yards. And, and our road is sort of downhill in our neighborhood. There's a cul-de-sac down at the bottom of the hill, and, and cars tend to pick up you know, their rate of speed as they pass by. So we've warned Caroline over and over and over and over and over again, you've got to be careful. When you're getting close to that road, you've got to slow down, give plenty of time, look both ways. Cars are coming fast. You might not see them. You might not hear them. You've got to pay attention. Now, imagine if I'm sitting out in my lawn chair, out in the yard, Caroline's playing with her friends across the street. They're running back and forth, you know, having a big time. And, and I see Caroline take off to the road to run across the street, and there's a Ford F-150 barreling down the road, okay? A loving father does not sit back in the lawn chair and go, well, I've tried to tell her. I told you once, right? You know, too bad, you know? I mean, nobody does that, right? That's the opposite of love. What's a loving father going to do? I'm going to jump up because I realize she's running after something that she does not know is about to rob her of life. So what am I going to do? I'm not going to sit back and watch the train wreck happen. Man, I'm running to it. And if it costs me my very own life to spare the life of my child from that which could rob her of life, then, then man, it's worth it. I'm going to give my life to that. I'm going to do whatever I've got to do to save my child from that which could rob her of her life. And that is the exact same thing our Heavenly Father, A, has already done in and through the finished work of Jesus on our behalf, Right? Jesus steps out of the throne room of heaven, lives the perfect life that we could not live, dies in our place for our sin, not some of our sin, most of our sin, the big sins, but all of our sin, past, present, and future, pays the penalty in full, resurrected from the grave, victorious over death, sin, and hell, offering us new eternal life through him, right? God the Father, at the expense of his Son, has already rescued us from what would rob us of our lives, but then he continues in relationship through the presence, the person, the work of the Holy Spirit, to expose the idols of our hearts, the little gods that we're putting in the position of God, looking to them, to those things, to those people, to those pursuits for life, instead of looking to the one who came to give us life. He puts his finger on those things and he elevates them. And we need him to do that because often we are blind to our own blindness, right? I mean, we, most of us, if we walked in here today, took a survey as you walked in the door and, and asked, um, do you consider yourself to be an idolater? You're going to go, mm, no totem poles, no golden calves, no, no, not an idolater, right? But here's the reality. Theologians said once that our hearts are idol factories. We're constantly putting little g gods into the place of God, looking to them to give us life, looking to them to give us meaning and purpose and value and putting Jesus over to the side. And we're constantly giving ourselves to something or someone else in that position of God instead of the one true God. In a way that we can discover maybe what those idols might be for us. I don't know what they might be for for, for you. They're probably different than than what they are for me, but a way to discover is to ask ourselves and wrestle with this question, which gives you more fear? There's no money in the bank or no Jesus? That there's no promotion or no Jesus? No relationship that I really, really want? Or no Jesus. Right? And we can keep going, put any number of things. Now, 
Are we saying these things are bad? No. Is it, is it wrong to want to do the very best you can at your job? No. Is it wrong to want to provide for your family? Absolutely not. Is it wrong to long for a, a godly man or woman to marry and spend the rest of your life with in, in marriage and family? No. Is it wrong to, to pursue things? No, it's not. But here's, here's the danger. When, when good things become God things, that's a bad thing. When we take good things and put them in the position of being a God thing, my life's found here, my identity's found here, my purpose is found here, my whole value and worth is wrapped up in this, and we create Jesus plus scenarios, right? That's a, that's a bad thing. Why? Because these things are here today and gone tomorrow, right? These things are temporary. Jesus in relationship with him is forever. So, so what, is, what is the one thing in your life that maybe Jesus is putting his finger on? Maybe he's been doing it long before today, or maybe he's just doing it right now. What's Jesus putting his finger on and saying, careful, this might be something that you're taking. It's a good thing I made and I gave you, but you're making it a God thing. I'm the only one who can give you life. He's put, he's put his finger on it today because maybe that very thing you, you're looking to to give you life is actually robbing you of life. The very thing you're looking to to give peace is actually robbing you of peace. The very thing you're looking to give you purpose is actually robbing you of a purpose and Jesus is putting his finger on it. Now understand, that finger that Jesus puts on it, it's not a finger of condemnation, okay? Jesus already suffered and paid the full debt for our sin, right? There's nothing left to do in that department. Jesus declared it is finished. But here's... Here's maybe my favorite part of the story. In verse 21, when Jesus looks at him, okay, this guy is an idolater. Jesus has already exposed it. His God is his wealth and his possessions. And this guy's about to walk away from Jesus saying, "Mm, no, I'm going to keep going with the wealth and possession route. And it says in verse 21 that Jesus looks at him and what? Condemns him, looks at him and sends him away, looks at him and drop kicks him in the face, what does he do? It says he looks at him and he what? Loved him. Blows my mind. In my idolatry and my sin of putting countless little gods in the position of God in my life, Jesus looks at me and he loves me. And he looks at you right now and he loves you. And his invitation is repent. Turn away from that. Lay it down at my feet and find freedom and find life that you never imagined. And here's the beautiful thing, is that when we lay these things down at Jesus' feet, and this is a constant, it's not like a one-time thing in our lives, this is constantly, constantly, constantly repenting and laying down these little G-gods that we put in the position of one true God. Constantly repenting, constantly laying these things down. Here's what we find. We find freedom and life in relationship with Jesus. We find that he transforms us more and more into his image. He makes us more generous. He makes us more, more, more humble. He makes us more serving. But then you know what else it does? It frees us up to go wherever he would call us to go. To leverage our money, not for our kingdom, but for his kingdom. To leverage our time and our lives, not for, not for our name to be made great, but for his name to be made great, right? It frees us up to follow him. It frees us up to be transformed by him. It frees us up to go in his name wherever he would call us to go. So what is it that Jesus is putting his finger on in your life? He's calling you to repent of and find freedom and find life that only he can give. Because friends, here's what I want you to know today is that Jesus plus nothing equals 
everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything because he is in fact enough. Trust him and find your life in him today. Maybe some of you need to place your faith in Jesus for the first time. We're going to have a time of invitation, an opportunity for you to respond to the gospel today. Maybe some of you need to repent and take some time to pray, take some time to to get alone, and and maybe you want to talk with one of your pastor or staff members here. This is going to be an open time for you to respond as the Lord is leading you uh, this morning. I'm going to pray, and we're going to respond together uh, to God's word and God's work this morning. Father, thank you uh, for your word that speaks to us right where we are. Thank you for not leaving us alone in our sin and our idolatry and our pursuit of things that can never deliver. But God, thank you, the loving Father, for coming, first of all, to rescue us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and then to continue to give us life, to continue to call us to, to freedom and repentance from our sin and our idols. And so I pray, God, you make very clear what what are the things that are keeping us from the life that you came to give us? And I pray that we'd lay those at your feet today, whether it's trusting you as Savior and God for the very first time, or whether it's repenting of something or someone that we've given ourselves to instead of you. And God, help us to find life, help us to find peace, let's find joy in you and you alone today, that we could live the life you've called us to live, that we could go to the ends of the earth, not building our kingdoms, but building your kingdom. All for your glory in the name of Jesus. We pray and respond now in Jesus' name. Amen.